God, prepare our hearts today. Teach us mercy. Help us to live in your mercy and your grace and give out mercy freely and often in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. Welcome back, everybody. We've been covering the book of Jude for the past month, so September, um, has been on contending the faith. Last week, Brother Damon uh, preached a powerful word about the influences, the forces of evil that were stealthily inserting themselves into the church, and he spoke about the history and context of the church when Jude wrote his letter and the struggles the early church and our modern church faces when the gospel is distorted. So, and I don't know, how many people were here on Wednesday? Anybody here on Wednesday? That was an amazing time, wasn't it? That was good, yeah. And, and those are the types of things that we need, those types, times where we can come together as a family uh, to see what's going on in our culture and our society and be equipped for what we need to do and what we need to have when we go out and engage with others and most importantly, love others. Um, so to catch everyone up, just to set the context of where we're going today, Jude was, who was the brother of Jesus, wrote his letter to the early church in the late 60s AD, near or around the time Peter, the one who was the rock who built the church, uh, wrote his letter. And a common theme in both of these writings was a warning against false teaching that had began to creep into the culture of the church. Side note, I want to make this very clear as we move forward, that a false teaching is a teaching that stood in direct conflict with the apostles' teachings of, about, or from Jesus Christ. In this case, these false teachers were marked by their ungodly lifestyles, and they taught others that they could live in the same way as Christians. In essence, basically, you can live in sensuality and sin, but be covered under grace. And many of them were also denying the lordship and the personhood of Jesus Christ. Let's quickly pause here. False teaching is a big deal. Throughout biblical history, an enemy distorting the truth of what God has said to lead people into sin has always been a major thing. From Satan's original deception in the garden to the false prophets of Israel turning their hearts away from God, the early church saw many forms of false teaching, and there are many warnings throughout the Gospels in the letter. In this case, what we're covering today, Jude is one, of, is one of them calling out those false teachers in the early church. And at the same time, he's equipping those who are part of that church with the ability to recognize who those false teachers are. Even Jesus warned against them, saying, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. In the previous verse, and, and let's, let's go a little bit deeper. What is the fruit? Well, they recognize them by their fruit. Jude calls out these men and discusses what that fruit is in the previous verses, characterizing them by their ungodliness. They rely on their dreams instead of the spirit. They reject authority. They slander. They are selfish. They, they're looking only after themselves instead of the flock 
or others, and they live according to their own desires. They use arrogant words and flatter people to their own advantage. Now, I don't know if anybody knows or have seen any preachers out here who kind of do a little bit of that or gone, even been a part of churches where that was prevalent, but it's here. So two key things in recognizing false teaching takeaways. Look at the fruit of their lives. Are they being godly or is there ungodliness? And then examine examine what they say about who God is. I say this because if it happened in the church, look at this, when the literal eyewitnesses of Jesus were there, okay, how much more likely are these various beliefs likely to exist today? We need to be alert for those people who lead folks away from the truth of the Bible and reject the lordship of Christ and undermine the faith of others. We need to avoid leaders like that, social media influencers. Sometimes they're not leaders. Some, sometimes you could just go on their Instagram page. Uh, wise men, Bible teachers who distort the Bible. And really, this is the thing. What's the intent? To suit their own purposes. Today, we're going to talk about our posture and how to posture ourselves to be defenders of the faith and confront those who are caught in the form of false teaching. Now, just a little bit of a note. My son is in Taekwondo, so they're always talking about different postures and stances. So that's kind of where we're going to come from today. Here's the simple challenge. We need to have an informed, active faith in the gospel, and we must engage with mercy and truth. So journey with me as we talk through our posture and how we engage. Step one, I wish I had given you the, the, uh, the scriptures in advance, but maybe you can kind of keep up. Anyway, step one, oh, well, for all those, get out your Bibles. I hope you all have your Bibles in hand. <laughs> we'll do an old school style. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles in the back that you can keep up with. But we're in Jude, um, the book of Jude. It only has one chapter. Yes, that's right. Devices. I'm, all, I'm all, all over the place. But yes, turn to the book of Jude. Our verses today were verse 20 um, through 25. But step one to getting into this defensive posture is actually found before our verses in verse 17. It says, but you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude makes an appeal to the church to remember the words of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, which included that there would be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires right there in their midst. There's a twofold message here. Number one, we should expect and not be surprised that false teachings that encourage ungodly living will surface not only in the world broadly, but also in the church culture. We have to be ready because we have been warned, according to verse 17. And then the second thing is that we have to know, we have to recognize, we have to know our word, specifically with an emphasis on the apostles' teachings. In that day, the early church relied on the apostles' teachings as a baseline 
because they were the eyewitnesses. They were the ones who spent time with Jesus. They sat under Jesus' teachings. They were the ones commissioned out when he ascended to heaven and got things started at Pentecost. With false teachers coming in, the early church had to have that baseline with the apostles' teaching for what Jesus said and did. Today, the Bible is our present-day source that documents the testimonies, teachings, stories of those teachings of the apostles. We could do a class on the reliability of the Bible alone, but we're not going to spend time doing that today. Uh, maybe that's one of our Wednesday night gatherings. Um, but it's critical that we stay in our word every day. This is an essential part of our defensive posture. Knowing the teachings, the words, the stories, the culture, the context of the, of the apostles' teachings of the Bible, of, the, of, this, of this book, is the baseline especially when these false teachings and ideas and all these things arise, they will actually play to the fact that you don't know the Bible. So that's why it's important to know it and to be ready. I was going to say, I don't know who told me this. Maybe it was, maybe it was you, Mother. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Okay. <laughs> so step two to getting into the defensive posture is found in verse 20. And I know that was just on the screen. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in the most holy faith, and I'm going to stop right there. How many people in the room work out or have participated in some athletic training of some kind? Okay, so maybe I see, I see all y'all fit people trying to be all humble. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't do nothing. I'm just... <laughs> Usually, you set a goal, like if you're running a 5K or building muscle or losing fat, etc. The only way to achieve those goals is to practice, to exercise, to be intentional about the running or the going to the gym or going to that or relying on that diet. This conditions your body to be ready to handle the 5K or see the progress that you need to see. In the same way, it's critical that we exercise our faith by doing what we see or learn in God's word. That's why it's not just enough to read it or to learn it or to know it. We have to exercise it. We have to practice it. It's not just enough to know what Jesus says or to know the truth. Matter of fact, even the devil, kind of be even the devil believes the truth. And shudders, okay? Obviously, he doesn't practice it, but <laughs> we have to live it, and we have to practice it and do it. Your level of trust in God is determined by your obedience to the word. The only way to fully experience the truth of God's word in your life is to obey it. Otherwise, it's just a concept on a piece of paper. Jesus even takes it a step further, a step higher than that, saying that if you love me, you will obey my commandment. So the question that we should ask, ask ourselves, not just now, but throughout the week, in our personal devotions, in our time in the morning, every day, is 
Do I trust what God says? When the word says, cast your cares on me because I care for you, do you hold on to the stress or the anxiety? Or do you actually pray and trust God with the outcome? When the word says, revenge is mine, said the Lord, it is I who will repay. Do you react and give whoever it is what they deserve? Or do you give it to God and trust him to fight your battles? When the word says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, do you pray and prioritize about your life around the things that matter to God? Or do you prioritize your life about around things that are convenient or will be most profitable? The best way to build your faith is to exercise it. And a critical part of the defensive posture when it comes to false teaching is being built up in your faith. And this is the key point, especially as it pertains to exercising the muscle of loving God and loving others. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Living out what you learn in the scripture is the absolute best testimony that you believe it to be true. Step three. All right. To getting into this defensive posture is found, also found in verse 20, right there on the screen. Praying in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Let's simplify this as much as possible. I know we have some real deep prayer warriors in the room. They were just praying a few minutes ago. We don't even have to be real super spiritual about it. We serve a living God. He is alive. He is active. He is attentive to the things going on around you, inside of you, in your mind, heart, all of that. And and he does it not just for you. He is literally doing that for everybody else. At the same time, prayer is dialoguing with this invisible God that does all of the things we just discussed. Prayer gives you the opportunity to ask for insight, to ask for knowledge and understanding right at the moment of your need. It also allows you to ask God for helping for help living out and obeying his commands. Because believe it or not, it's tough to obey some of those commands. I know for me it is, but that's what prayer does. Prayer allows us to simply just ask this invisible God who's actively in our lives, give me the help that I need. (laughs) Anyway, lost my place. Okay. As followers of Christ, knowledge about God and Jesus isn't enough. Prayer is what links us to him and his power to live out a life like Jesus. Even Jesus, who was God, prayed to the Father before he made certain moves in ministry or went certain places and did different things. If Jesus could do it, how much more do we need to be doing that on a day-to-day basis? Prayer is our expression towards him in the relationship that we have. And and this this is very important. Christianity is not just a set of rules and standards that we live by. It is a relationship. That's what makes this whole thing different. 
It's not something we just read and understand and trust and have faith. It is an active relationship. Prayer plugs us into this relationship. We are not meant to live this life alone. We absolutely have the help we need. We need God. It's our original design. When Adam and Eve were created in the garden, God was in their midst and in relationship with them. So it's in our design to have this ongoing relationship and connection with God. In present day, God has given us the help, and Jesus promised it to us in John chapter 14. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him. Why? Because he remains with you and will be in you. I mean, you just got to have the faith to even just grasp that, that the living God is in you. So wherever you go, he's with you. Tap in. Tap into that. He's waiting. I've been walking for Christ for a long time. I, was, I had the years down here, but I wasn't going to date myself. And sometimes I'm left speechless during my prayers. A good place to start with prayer, of course, is Matthew 6, and just kind of breaking that down verse by verse. And then I'm just telling you, any of the Psalms, like you can just grab one of those Psalms, Psalms 23, Psalm 16, Psalm 51. Take those Psalms and pray through them. Make them your own. I'm consistently blessed when I do that. That's just a note of practicality. So getting back into our defensive posture, um, let's look at verse 21. It says, keep yourself in the love of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, for eternal life. Jesus gave his disciples the same postures to be in the book of John, saying, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that your joy may be complete, or I'm sorry, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. So this verse kind of ties it all together, you know, in terms of from our obedience to our knowledge to all of, you know, just to prayer, you know, this, this whole, t- this ties it all together. Um, the gospel, your story of how, and, and I, just looking at the verse, focusing on the part where it says, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. This ties back to the gospel. Your story of how Christ loved you and gave you eternal life must stay at the forefront of your mind so it can inform you of your actions as you are in a defensive posture towards false teaching. The more you keep your mind and your heart focused on God's grace and mercy applied to you, how God loved you, it will set the lens of how you interact with not only just yourself, but with other people as well. If God saw you valuable enough that while you were a sinner, 
Christ died for you and gave you eternal life, why would you question your worth or the worth of anyone else? If he forgave you, why can't he forgive the person who's trapped in some sort of false teaching or sin? Now that we have our kind of, we've gone through some steps of defensive posture, how do we engage with those around us who are caught up in false teaching? How do we engage with the false teaching itself? How do we combat the philosophies and the views that encourage others to be self-centered or ungodly? Before I go there, I'll share a story. You know, I'm going to do this every time. When I was a teenager, I was one of those super zealous for Christ types of people. Those who are here, my friends know that. But. So I had a best friend, and we both claimed Christ, but we could not find agreement on evolution. I did research. I read books about evolution and creation, participated in an overwhelming share of conversation, Debated over the phone, debated over AIM. Y'all know how many people know what AIM is? <laughs> uh, that's AOL, Instant Messenger for our millennials. Anyway, uh, Generation Z, all them. And of course, we did it face to face. Regardless of what fact I found, what truth I discovered and shared, he was not changing his mind. I was convinced that if I just said the right thing, he wouldn't acknowledge God in creation. As a matter of fact, I had the same situation happen with another one of my good friends about godly living, listening to secular music and profanity. This was in high school. Um, no matter what I told him, showed him in scripture, I could not convince him to abandon his bone thugs in harmony, his Nas and his Eminem. Okay? <laughs> they, they all thought that I was holier than thou, obviously, and I'm pretty much out of touch. But I loved apologetics, and I loved defending the faith and the culture among my peers. But I really didn't see a transformative impact until I stopped trying in my own effort to convince them, to change them, and matter of fact, subvertively condemn them for their perspectives. I prayed and decided to just build relationship with them and let a life of love and what I thought to be holiness at the time, this is a gray issue, it's very nuanced, speak for itself. Even though these aren't salvation issues, I realized that the posture at which I approached them and those issues heavily impacted the outcome. So let's read verse 22 and 23. It says, Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Reading verse 22 and 23, one thing the Lord immediately highlighted to me was mercy. When you think of defending the faith or approaching someone in error, I gravitate towards persuasion or correction. But these verses lead with mercy for those who waver. Now, there is a time and a place for correction and redirection, as these verses indicate. 
the latter, verse, latter part of verse, or the first part of verse 23, but then Jude goes right back to the mercy. And then, but this time, with a warning, he encourages that the church, he encourages that the church, that when showing mercy, there needs to be a hatred toward that false doctrine. And kind of resembles the warning that Paul gives in Galatians to their church. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with the gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted. So it's almost that hatred is honestly geared more self-centered, like it's self-directed, like you be careful for whatever it is. The definition of mercy according to the Bible dictionary is the expression of God's steadfast love that relieves misery and does not give all that the sinner deserves. I'm sitting in my study time, marveling that when someone is caught in false teaching, sinful ideology and theology, has certain philosophies that lead to sinful lifestyles, I should have mercy. When engaging with someone, love has to be the foundation. It has to lead. I've always been taught verses like, be ready to give an answer or defense. And I've been emboldened by the world's seeming relentless tenacity about our ways of life and just trying to push forward agendas that are counter to Scripture. My first inclinations are naturally dogmatic. Want to get into a debate, be argumentative about some of these things and saying, I'm right because this is what the Bible says. Instead, we should be leading with understanding, humility, compassion. Actually, some other translations of the scripture say compassion instead of mercy. And a bold gentleness that displays care and concern. Simply put, leading with mercy means acknowledging the error, showing compassion and gaining understanding and encouraging the truth in love. We must, of course, everybody has heard this statement, reject the sin and love the sinner. How many people heard that statement before? Okay. Yeah. Well, I feel like when we start trying to do it, it's like it's kind of murky, you know. Does anybody else kind of... Often in our Christian context and in our American church culture, we build these crusades against these concepts. They cover a broad swath of people. The problem is, is that when we build these concepts, we do it at the expense of the relationships with the one who is actually in that sin or in that error. And many people I've had discussions with about some of these theological topics like tongues or social issues like sexual identity or abortion haven't even spoken to or had a relationship with someone who is experiencing it. But they do have a solid opinion, one way or the other. Unfortunately, we lift up these concepts at the expense of the relationship. I can go on, and I'm not. (laughs) because we have a very good example of what this mercy looks like in John 8. 
Marita's story. In John 8, so when Jesus, uh, it says, Then the scribe and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. I believe this story is perfect, a perfect picture of God's mercy. Imagine being in this woman's place, caught in the act, facing judgment by what is prescribed in the eyes of Jewish law. When Jesus is given the opportunity to determine her fate, and really it's a fate of life and death, he states, who, he who is without sin casts the first stone. Conviction settles in. Truth settles in. And they begin to leave. Jesus is the only one left, and what does he say? He doesn't condemn, but he grants mercy and tells her to sin no more. Other translations say, go now and leave your life of sin. I'm afraid that in this battle between ultimate condemnation and total excusal, folks stop at mercy. But Christ gives her this amazing gift. He saves her life, forgives her sin, and then tells her not to sin anymore. I can only imagine being the woman given such a gift. This will be ample motivation to live a clean life with a fresh start. And more importantly, for her to follow Jesus. Jesus is setting a key precedent here. And, let, and we'll talk about how it relates to our posture. Righteous living is motivated by his grace and mercy. First John says, we love because he first loved us. This is the essence of the gospel, and mercy leads, and obedience follows. As imitators of Christ, all of us in this room, if you believe in Christ, this has to be a part of the posture when we engage the sin and brokenness that infiltrates the church. There is a clear understanding of the ungodliness, but the approach is wise, it's merciful, and has a call to repentance. In summary, we see Jesus here reject the sin and love the sinner, 
And so remember, we're talking about the posture. Scripture says that we need to incorporate this kind of mercy when we see a brother or sister that's wavering. Remember that our words are powerful and can be very sharp at times. Now, y'all are going to have to bear with me because my wife says I'm not good at examples, but we're going to go with this one. (laughs) Defending the faith is almost like surgery. In a surgery, a doctor has to cut into the body in order to address whatever issues that are going on. A surgeon never denies that there is a problem. But a surgeon also, matter of fact, no one wants to be cut, not even the body doesn't want to be cut. But if you have a reckless or impatient surgeon, more damage can be done than good. A good surgeon is attentive and careful and gentle and knowledgeable of what they're doing. So in the same way, as you stand for the truth, be characterized by your attentiveness, by your care, by your gentleness, how much you love and show mercy to the one that's in error. But have an equal level of commitment to seeing that that person is free from whatever sin or brokenness that they're in. God does it all the time with us just as he did with that adulterous woman. When you come across a brother or sister caught in a sinful pattern due to false theology or teaching, let's not rush to throw research at them, prove them wrong in a debate or argument or outcast them. There may be times when you need to confront them in a loving way with redirection or correction, but in many cases we should be showing the mercy by seeking an understanding by praying for them, by building a relationship so you can encourage them with the truth. Regardless of the approach, we need to be very alert as a church. We need to be very vigilant about the false teachers that creep in. How do we do this? We're in sync with Christ, with a defensive posture, with all of those elements that we just discussed. So I'd like to close our time today with verse 24 and 25, which has an awesome promise. It says, Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. You are not alone in your walk with Christ. This defensive posture seems like a tall order, you know, but he invites us to trust him and not lean to our own understanding. If you've given your life to Christ, you trust in his word, you have a relationship with him. He will keep you and he will protect you. Let's pray.
Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.